Hello, hello, and welcome to another Rich Text audio chat. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And today our episode is loosely themed. What are the kids up to these days? You know, the kids, like, what are they doing? The kids, yes, just the the kids, anyone younger than us is really what (laughs) we mean. Today, we're going to be talking about Cruel Summer, the freeform teen suspense thriller, which has been a real delight to watch. Um, We're also going to get into Olivia Rodrigo's smash hit album, Sour, and talk about the post-breakup drama between Peter and Kelly. You know, we had to get in a little bit of Bachelor gossip. Yeah, we were like, do Peter and Kelly count as the kids? And then we were like, they're younger than us. So, you know, basically in elementary school, um, <laughs> like 30, whatever. Um, whatever. So let's start with that and um, get that out of the in. way. Yeah. <laughs> Move on we'll, to we'll the work actual backwards age wise. Um, so uh, let's talk about Peter and Kelly. So for those who haven't been following their relationship for whatever reason, Peter was the bachelor a couple seasons ago. Um, he met Kelly before the bachelor briefly, but she ended up being on his season and that was a bit of a storyline, but she didn't win. He picked someone else and then he dumped that person to pursue, to pursue someone else from his season. That also didn't work. That also didn't work out. And when both of those relationships failed, he ended up dating Kelly, but it seemed to go super well. His mom, Barb, who is very uh, protective, was a huge fan of Kelly, Um, she spent a lot of time with his family during quarantine and they seem to have a wonderful relationship for like, I don't know, like nine months, maybe a little less than a year. Yeah. A little less than a year. Um, yeah. Seemed to be going well. It was largely, you know, happened kind of during quarantine. They, I think, uh, Peter ended up going to Chicago and basically living with Kelly and also Dustin Kendrick and Dustin and Peter are now living together in New York. Kelly is also moving to New York. Yes, they were going to move to New York together. And that's sort of where the drama begins, which is around Christmas. They both posted really gushy Instagrams about each other. And then a few days later, I think on like New Year's Eve, it was New Year's Eve. Uh, Peter posted a breakup post saying, you know, we've gone our separate ways. It, be- it became clear, like he took the post down and then it put it back up. Kelly didn't post at first. It She made it clear eventually that like she hadn't wanted to post about it yet. Um, But then in February, they're seen together in Florida. Turns out they reunite for a short period of time. Then they break up again for good this time. Allegedly, it's been a few months. So fast forward to this week. Kelly was on a Barstool Sports podcast, Chicks in the Office, um, and she, she basically said some, some things about Peter and how he handled the breakup that like, weren't super flattering. Um, she kind of basically implied that he, he, they didn't really see eye to eye on certain things that he wasn't quite mature enough. She talked about his love of Pokemon cards. Um, and yeah, she says like, oh, I try to convince myself that I liked Pokemon to like be supportive and like do things together. But like, I eventually had to be like, is that really me? It just seems like they weren't a good fit, which is totally fine. Um, but the real sort of like animosity seemed to have come up, you know, first with that disagreement over when to, to go public about the breakup. And then after they reunited, she basically said she found out some news but she didn't say exactly what that really upset her. Uh, and that she essentially told him like, she didn't want 
to be in contact with him at all. Yeah. Um, she was like, get out of my life, <laughs> lose my number. She is like, yeah, we both live in New York now, but like, if I saw him, I would run. Um, not like, not in like an, I'm terrified way to she be clear. Like joking. you see that in headlines yeah. and you're like, oh my God, but like, it's sort of joking, but like, clearly she's not interested in chatting. Um, and she also likes give a little more detail on like the breakup, um, the first breakup uh, conflict, which is that, you know, she and Bachelor producers had basically agreed that if they waited like three days to announce it, it would get lost or slightly lost in the premiere of the next season of The Bachelor. And um, it wouldn't be quite so prominent in The Bachelor news cycle. And Peter uh, was like, I just really want to leave this relationship in 2020. Um, and that will become relevant <laughs> because Peter uh, responded to this by deciding to tell his side on his new podcast with Dustin, Bachelors in the City. This was like teased very dramatically on Instagram. It's like, like, I'm going to be brutally <laughs> raw and real, just brutally honest. And it was like, it was basically like a 25 minute monologue uh, in which he said a lot of words and really revealed very little. Yeah. I summed up uh, the general gist in my notes here. <laughs> His contentions were Kelly really did like Pokemon, no matter what she said. Um, she really did like it. Um, <laughs> also, I did insist on posting the breakup earlier than she wanted just because I kind of felt like it and wanted to do it in 2020. And I wish he wouldn't talk about any of this in public. <laughs> he also, like, thanks for the, sharing, Peter. The one thing he didn't address at all was the fact that she, that Kelly had alluded to the fact that he had like done something that really pissed her off, really hurt her um, kind of in this second round of dating. Like he basically glazed over that fully and then like did some like semi-condescending shit where he was like, you know, Kelly's just such an amazing woman. And I just wish she would like focus on what she stands for and like, you know, just speak to like all of her amazing stories rather than trying to get headlines by, yeah. you know, he going on a podcast about this relationship. Yeah. He, he's heavily <laughs> implying that, you know, she's a clout chaser, that she's a clout chaser, that she is um, short selling her own like potential uh, by making uh petty choices that like she could be out there like I don't know talking about being a lawyer or whatever the bachelor nation desperately wants to hear and instead she is talking about their old relationship that's over and he's definitely over it for sure oh yeah he says that like 12 times many times um but Poor Dustin comes on at the end and it's just <laughs> like I like you I like Kelly I want everyone to just get along I'm like just leave Dustin out of this narrative Poor Dustin. I mean, I, he talks about like being put in the middle of their relationship in the past. And I was like, and that continues. But um, yeah, like the frustrating thing is don't try to get the clicks and the headlines by saying, I'm going to tell you my side and then come on and be like, my side is trying to get clicks and headlines is petty and you just shouldn't talk about this stuff at all. Um it was and, a weird and, holier than thou thing that was like heavily to, teased by like, please subscribe to my podcast. Yeah. Which, look, respect. He's like hustling. it's your story. <laughs> you should get to tell it on, on your terms. But like there wasn't a lot of there there. 
Yeah. I mean, if you want to tell your side, I do think that you, it's weird to both like confirm that you like did do one of the things that pissed her off and that it was for the not super compelling reason that she was honest about initially alleging. (laughs) Um, So you're like, we agree on that. And the other thing I'm just going to not address at all. Um, This is my side. He's like, my side is I would like her to not talk about me in ways that are unflattering. Yeah. That's which I side. understand. Yeah. I, that's uh, a normal feeling. I get that. But like, yeah, the, the impression that we're left with from his podcast, if you just listen to that in isolation is like, we broke up for, you know, normal reasons, couples and relationships. I want to stay amicable because I'm a respectful, kind, loving person. And I am capable of having like love in my heart for Kelly, even though we didn't work out. I wanted to be happy, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows why she feels differently? I couldn't possibly begin to imagine why she's doing that, but it's very sad. Um, so if there's anything that he did that might have motivated some animosity on Kelly's part, we certainly don't hear about it from Peter and we don't even really hear him deny it. He just doesn't touch it at all. Uh, I mean, I'm exhausted even talking about this for like 10 minutes. So I feel like, yeah, we should just move on. And as Peter said, he's very over their relationship. So we can all be over it as well. I mean, I will say like, I, I didn't love how Peter addressed it in the podcast. It seemed very calculated to come off as the good guy um, (laughs) without actually doing what it purported to do um, initially. But um, I agree with him that I do not want to hear about why they broke up and (laughs) I would like to be done talking about it. Um, Moving on, let's talk about something much more fun. Cruel Summer which oh I've, gosh. I've, I've been hearing about it like here and there, but Emma finally was like, you have to watch it. So I binged it this week. I mean, it's highly bingeable. It's on free form. I've been watching it on Hulu. You can get it on various platforms. It is like a really fun, soapy teen nostalgic thriller. Um, but it's actually kind of a meditation on teen girlhood and like the fucked up reality of coming into womanhood. Um, but in this like very soapy, very bingeable package. So for, for those of you that haven't seen any of this, this is kind of the premise. Um, it's basically about two teen girls lives that are interconnected in sort of tragic ways in the mid nineties in the town of Skyland in Texas. Um, we have nerdy at first kind of nerdy, innocent Jeanette, who undergoes a social renaissance when the like beautiful blonde popular Kate goes missing um, at the end of the summer in 1993. A year later. So Kate goes missing. Kate is dating like a hot jock. She has these Mm -hmm. two best friends after Kate's been missing for a year. um, Jeanette is now dating that boy. Jeanette is now friends with those girls. Um, So she kind of like, enters into this life that was left behind. And then Kate is found like, this is not in fact a murder mystery, which is sort of usually, I think how this really, yeah. Claire was like confused. She's like, I I didn't read the synopsis before, Um, but we found out, you find out very early on, I think in, in the first episode Mm -hmm. that a year later, um, Kate is 
found and she's been held captive in the basement of the town vice principal's home. Very, very disturbing. Um, and the, the real kind of like big reveal is that Kate then claims that Jeanette saw her during her captivity and did nothing. Jeanette, of course, denies this, but it creates a situation where in 1995, um, both of these young women are really suffering and kind of rebelling against the expectations of them, as well as like involved in legal action against each other. Um, and the first season is sort of dedicated to like revealing what actually happened and putting all of the pieces together because the way that the show is structured is that each episode is kind of either from Kate's point of view or Jeanette's. Sometimes they're, they're merged, but usually it's sort of like one of them is focused on. And each episode is told on a single day, but that day over the course of three summers, 93, 94, and 95. So we're sort of jumping around in the timeline a lot. I'm curious, Claire, how did, how did you feel about the structure? Like, has it been working for you or did you find it overly confusing? Yeah, I, I found it a little confusing at first, but, um, which is funny because they're almost like heavy handed in how they distinguish between them. You know, in the first summer we have very like bright bubblegum palette, like retro nostalgia chic, like Kate is blonde, like smooth faced, like innocent, um, always dressed in like really cute, like little on trend, sexy clothes. Jeanette is, has big curly hair braces. She's nerdy, um, and awkward. And then we cut to a, like a slightly darker future where Jeanette has straightened hair, no braces. She's popular and cool clearly. And, um, meanwhile, Kate is still beautiful and still, um, still attractive obviously but like she's not groomed in the same way she's dressed more drably and that just continues like by the time we get to the last summer like um Kate is more alt like she's exploring more like more of a rebellious aesthetic and Jeanette has like chopped off all of her hair is always just like grumping around and and like unappealing clothes like and, and there's like very a very, dark. very intense overlay. Yeah. Like a very yeah. dark overlay, which it is heavy handed, but I think it's probably the only way that they could have done something like this because there is so the jumping around is so frequent. I actually think that the Kate timeline is what trips me up the most because her second two, her 94 and 95 looks are not that dissimilar. Whereas Jeanette has a completely different hairstyle in each one. Every, every single one. Yeah. And it really like, it really, the quick juxtaposition, like really encapsulates like the different archetypes that we expect from teen girls and like the ways that we see, expect them to process their experience of growing up or of trauma through their appearance and grooming. I want to talk a little bit about the, 90s setting of it like it's obviously um meant to capture a certain nostalgia which is probably why the show is working for like younger teens um on the level of like relating to the moment in their lives that the characters are and also like a lot of millennials who you know lived through 
um, lived through the 90s and came of age in the 90s. I mean, I guess these characters technically would be a little bit older than us. Like we were not in uh, in high school in, in 94, but it is still an aesthetic and and like the soundtrack feels very familiar. Um, how do you feel about it? Um, I'm going to be honest. I often forget that it's set in the 90s, which like, I don't know if that just speaks to the fact that a lot of these fashions are coming back um, or that it's so comfortable to me that I don't think of it as being a period piece. Yeah. Um, I think a little bit of both, um, you know, a lot of nineties fashion, like the spaghetti strap dresses and tanks and even the, the chokers the and butterfly, the butterfly clips, the are butterfly even coming clips. back. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm looking at a current urban outfitters <laughs> ad. And so in that way, it's a way to sort of have the nostalgia in a way that will, I think, feel, I mean, I'm not a teen right now, but it probably feels a little bit more glamorous to a teen than going to a nostalgia era of like the eighties um, of the eight, like yeah. a, of a, of a style that's a little more out of date feeling right now. Um, but also like, I wasn't really participating in nineties culture that much because I didn't really start participating in pop culture until I was probably like 13 or 14 in any meaningful way. Like I didn't dress on trend. I didn't consume pop culture until the aughts. And so for me, it's whenever I watch like nineties TV or movies, it's almost like, oh yeah, all this was like happening out there while I was basically <laughs> like in my bed reading American girl doll books. Oh, I too was reading American girl doll books. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel, um, so reminiscent like of my own childhood, because again, there is that like crucial kind of age gap. Um, but some of the music feel is like oddly comforting. Um, I, I really enjoyed that there is a little Easter egg in one of the episodes where um, Kate and another one of Kate and Jeanette's friends, Mallory, um, are, are they're talking about what to watch and they decide to, to they decide to watch Clerks. Um, and then I found out that Mallory is actually Kevin Smith's daughter. So, and I was like a huge fan of Kevin Smith movies when I was <laughs> younger. So I was like, I really enjoyed that little Easter egg. Like there's just some fun stuff like that. Also seeing um, scenes where like they're going to the video store, like the video store is in fact, like kind of a, a big setting because another one of their friends works at a local video store. And that to me was like a, that felt very familiar. Like. I loved going to rent a movie and like scanning all of the different, you know, topical areas and like not knowing exactly what I wanted to get and reading the backs of all of the movies. And that's just an experience that over the course of our young adulthood completely disappeared. Um, and so it's like those little moments that feel that like tap into that nostalgia pleasure center. But I actually think it's not too, too heavy handed which I was a little bit worried that it would be at the beginning. Um, and I think, as you said, like it would feel more disruptive. Like it's nice to have those touch points while still feeling like this is sort of a story that could be taking place at any time. And there's something that makes me a little bit, and we're going to get into this more, I think when we talk about sour, but the idea of like current pop culture 
that appears to be geared at teens, that's about teens, that sort of, you know, depicts teens as, you know, sexual and, you know, as sort of almost geared for the gaze of peers. Um, when it's set in like a period past, I'm always like, okay, so our contemporary, is this for contemporary teens or is it for people who are teens in the nineties to watch, but it's like with teen actors, like showing teens, having teen experiences, like that makes me a little bit unsettled. Like, are we making just a bunch of like soapy, fun, aspirational style content about teens that are actually intended to be consumed by adults? And so I like that it does. I mean, I do think probably there's a big adult audience and I don't know what the breakdown is, but I don't think it's um, that it's so bathed in 90s nostalgia that it wouldn't be uh, attractive or comprehensible to someone who's young now. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that this show does like a pretty decent job of splitting the difference. Um, and this I is hope. the type Teens, of show. Tell us, tell us. What yeah, I mean, I could be wrong, but like, <laughs> this is the type of show that, like, certainly I would have been into and feel like I, you know, when I was a teenager. And like, there were plenty of shows on the WB because I had, I didn't have cable. So, like, all of the sort of like soapy shows I watched were like all the WB shows. And like, my parents would watch those with me and they could also enjoy those. Like, I don't know if you ever watched Popular, but that was like a very early no. Ryan Murphy show super weird and looking (laughs) back I'm like this is something that would have worked on multiple levels like it was about teens it was about high school but there were like elements of the humor and elements um like of the culture that certainly like probably would have landed with my parents as well um and so I do think that a lot of times these sort of pop culture products work on work on multiple levels And, and it can be done in a way that's done well or it can be in a way that probably lands like weirdly and maybe creepily (laughs) it's just something so funny to me about it because it's like when I was watching WB shows like One Tree Hill like those were set in the moment you know I was watching people who are young at the same time as me and I don't think it would have occurred to me to watch a show set in like the 1970s that was like a sexy soapy teen drama um, and There's so the that fact 70s that, that show, is, but I guess that was, a but that wasn't, that was like a con <laughs> and like, I feel like the fashion and the retroness of it, that was part of the comedy is like, yeah. there were young people who dressed like that. That's so <laughs> dorky, you know, <laughs> maybe I was misreading that, but that's definitely how it landed with me as a young person is just like, like they'd be cute if they didn't wear those hideous high-waisted pants. Um, this being the, look aughts, at you now, <laughs> look at me now, but yeah, like I, I do think that there's something a little um, that it speaks to the fact that so much teen focused content is actually now being made for a broader market than it was when we were young, that it's it being sort of consciously geared, not just toward teens, but toward people like us and uh, even older people. Um, and I do want to keep talking about that later, but yeah. yeah. The other thing um, sort of in the the vein of nostalgia that I did want to point to is the way that the show sort of dips its toes into the like hyper toxic tabloid culture of the 90s, um, which is something that I think is like in general, something that I think the culture now has been working our way through. Like there's been a rash of reevaluations of the way that the media covered 
certain like big gossipy stories about women in the nineties, you know, specifically like Monica Lewinsky is like a really great example. Um, and I think that that is a really like ripe area to explore. And I, I almost wish the show went more into it. Um, because outside of the vice principal, I feel like the only sort of villain in the show really is, is the media. Like there are a lot of scenes where both Kate and Jeanette are watching taped news reports or are talking about the way that their small town has been like besieged by reporters and the way that there's a lot of like awareness and maneuvering on both sides of trying to get the public on their side. And there being these like very limited pathways to do that because of course there is no social media. Like there, there are these big media gates keepers, which are the ones telling the stories. And this is also like right at the beginning kind of of that 24 hour news cycle. This would have been like around the time of OJ. Um, and there was like a real obsession with putting like pretty young girls and women's faces all over tabloids in order to sell them and capitalizing on that. Like like Jean Benet Ramsey is, is a face that like looms so large in my childhood. And like, I remember seeing her face plastered on every tabloid as I was going to CVS or checking out at the grocery store with my parents. Um, and I think that it's actually pretty, uh, realistic that a, a story like this, where a teen girl goes missing and was held captive by, the vice principal and maybe this other girl was actually plotting and evil and like did nothing to, to help her. Like that is exactly the kind of thing that would have been huge tabloid fodder and would have made like national news very easily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you see the way that, that it did operate in this post-social media age where it's like the battle of the whisper campaigns, you know, Kate um, comes back and very quickly starts telling the people closest to her that Jeanette saw her and didn't do anything. Um, And this spreads throughout their kind of tight knit community and Jeanette and her family are left wondering, like, how do we get the story back on our side? Like, should we be telling our friends like this isn't true? Should the family be distancing themselves from Jeanette to sort of cling to some level of their own reputation? Um, And, you know, at a certain point, then the question comes up of like, does Jeanette need to actually initiate legal action against Kate for defaming her, which is where the legal battle begins. Um, And those are the, 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 and that's because Kate goes on national TV and (laughs) says that Jeanette um, should burn in hell for what she did. Um, And so those are the avenues that you would see these public reputation battles being worked out in um, before, before we had Twitter. Um, And yeah, I think we do get into that a little bit. We see Jeanette watching media coverage obsessively We see her looking at tabloids um, with cover lines about her. We see her watching, you know, an interview with a journalist who's been covering her, who basically says, you know, some people, you know, in other words, like Jeanette are just 
wired differently and they're wired dangerous. Evil. Wired to be she evil. Said, well, she doesn't say evil. She yeah. says not evil, but like different in a way that's dangerous to us. <laughs> right. And the under the underlying um, you know, implication is that like there are people who are born criminal. Which is just like uh, to see that um, it's not great. Like you think of Nancy Grace, you think of all of these true crime commentators. That is a totally normal thing for someone to have said on TV about a teenage person who is not even in fact like accused of an actual crime. Um, And yet like it is really shocking in the moment. And so I, I think they use that kind of effectively to show that like, we don't know yet if Jeanette did something bad. We don't know for sure that Jeanette saw Kate. She insists that she didn't, but we do know um, that both of their lives have been completely blown up and destroyed by the way that they're being analyzed on such a massive stage. Yeah. And that's why I think ultimately that's like where the real sort of like villain lies, you know, Martin, the um, vice principal who, groomed Kate and ultimately held her captive. And we know that that is a thing that happened, um, is dead, (laughs) you know? Yeah. They do this interesting thing of like killing off the, the obvious villain right away. There's no, like he escaped and he's out there. Maybe he'll come back. And I think that the main, the main goal that they're going for there is actually to, to leave it totally up in the air who the villain is like, Mm -hmm. is, is it in a way Kate, like, is she trying to draw someone else? um into her trauma into her trauma or is she trying to regain the life that she saw had been sort of co-opted when she returned by attacking the person who was occupying that life or is the villain truly and purely like Jeanette did Jeanette see her and say well I want to keep dating her boyfriend I want to keep hanging out with her friends and her coming back would really mess that stuff up for me Um, and that creates a different dynamic from like, there's a boogeyman out there. It's more, more of a whodunit, um, despite the fact that the, the, the real literal villain, um, has already been dealt with. Yeah. And I think that that makes the, the bounds of the show much more interesting, Mm -hmm. um, as you, as you kind of laid out. And I'm wondering if we're sort of heading towards a place where, there are ultimately no clear cut villains and everyone has played a role in the way that this situation has played out. And that ultimately like, this is a conversation about the way that trauma has a ripple effect um, Mm -hmm. and the way that teen girls are used and abused so often by the people around them and ultimately pitted against each other. Yeah. Um, in this sort of competition and this hierarchy, because ultimately, like when we see their 95 selves, neither of them are happy. Both of these young women are like deeply suffering and railing mm-hmm. against the expectations of the people around them. Um, they both have been, you know, betrayed and in various ways by like the by boys and men in their lives. Um, what's interesting is is sorry go on no keep going I mean what's interesting is that that's true um but in a larger sense like I I think that there's very little emphasis and attention on the wrongdoings of men I think we see much more emphasis on 
how much did their mothers play into this? Mm -hmm. How much are they hurting each other? Um, How much are, you know, we see a lot of almost sort of like benign male figures. Um, Their fathers are both portrayed, I think, very, very positively overall. Um, Or at least if there's some complexity, I think the balance is still um, is still positive. They have, you know, the boyfriend, um, the shared boyfriend is kind of adult and he's a himbo. Very, he's a himbo. He's a himbo, except that he, uh, inflicts physical harm against Jeanette. Yes. But I think that that is actually, um, that that is actually portrayed quite sympathetically, uh, in a lot of ways, despite like some, some, there's definitely attention paid to like, you can't hit a woman and, you know, we're got to go over there make sure he never hits Jeanette again, yada, yada, which her, her brother and her father do. Um, her, her brother is, is like an angel on earth. Um, the, the male friends are, are all portrayed, I think quite flatteringly. So what we have, I think are these, these female friends who are seen as two-faced, who are conniving, who are social climbers, who are sort of, um, insidious seeming in a lot of ways. Mallory starts out as Jeanette's friend, becomes Kate's friend later. And I think Mallory is portrayed almost like if you have seen Mean Girls, she makes me like think of like Janice Ian is actually evil. Like that's kind of the vibe I get from her. <laughs> that is totally character. the vibe. Whereas Vince, I think is much, again, much more benign. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, the mothers sweet. are both portrayed as much more fundamentally flawed as the, than the fathers. But I'm curious yeah. what you think about that. No, I think that you're actually right. I, um, and that's not something that I had considered so directly. I wonder if, because just like I'm bringing my own lens also to watching this and I see like kind of all of these women as victims of the culture that they live in. Although I'm not sure that that's as you said, necessarily, um, what the show is emphasizing. And I don't know if that's intentional or, or not, or how much of it's intentional or, or how much of that is going to potentially be complicated. Um, cause I do mm-hmm. think at least with like Jeanette's parents at first, it feels like her mom, Cindy is a mess, abandoned the family, et cetera, et cetera. Her father is this like great guy who stuck around. Um, and as we get further into the season, we learned that like it was actually her father that ended their relationship. Her father did not want her, her mother to pursue her like career dreams. Jeanette has cut off contact with her mother, despite the fact her mother has tried to be in contact with her. Um, and it's really like her father's new girlfriend who almost steps up into that, like positive surrogate parenting role. And her father has sort of disconnected and doesn't quite trust his own daughter and doesn't really know how to connect with her. Um, I think in terms of Kate, it feels a little bit more simplistic. Like her mother is the complicated, messier one. And her father, her stepfather is like, just really coded as like a good, good, solid dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting about Jeanette's, uh, father's girlfriend, because I think you're right. She is like sort of the only positive, purely, purely positive seeming character. Um, but we also have this, this pattern, right. Where there's the parental figure who trusts Jeanette and the parental figure who doesn't. And that causes a rift between those two people. Um, and the, at first, the person who doesn't trust Jeanette is, is her mother. And that's what sort of begins the rift. Um, 
because he wants to continue trusting her. But as things keep coming to light that implicate Jeanette, that make it seem like she might have been at uh, the vice principal's house and have seen Kate and be lying to them about it, um, he begins to question as well. And then we we see this this character come in, the the girlfriend who loves him and thinks he's a great guy, but she is trying to be more um, purely supportive of her new boyfriend's child and build a relationship. And I wonder if we will see some tension arise there as she becomes more invested in that. And I think also then the question arises, like, is the person who doesn't trust Jeanette the better or worse parent? <laughs> because Jeanette, like if you, Jeanette is going through rebellion and she's not, she is lying to her parents. Like there are things that, that being purely trusting of her allows them to turn a blind eye to that maybe they shouldn't. I feel like both Kate and Jeanette are going through periods of rebellion. They're both mm-hmm. sort of like, as I said, railing against those expectations um, that that kind of punish, I'd say, like all young women and girls. And the lies that have come to light ultimately are like fairly benign from both of them. Um, and I do wonder kind of where we're headed. Like, it seems like there's going to be some bigger reveals or if not, like not all their lies are benign, but, um, none of not like I killed someone. Yeah. None of what we've, (laughs) we've seen thus far makes me not want to root for either of them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Like you could still, there's still both um, they both feel redeemable. They both feel like maybe both a feel damaged and both self. feel redeemable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's also, I, I don't want to leave out um, Kate's stepsister who kind of pops up. Like you don't really know she exists in the first few episodes that she spends a lot of time with her mom, I guess. Um, and she is someone who, um, so Kate's stepfather is black. Her stepsister is black Kate wants to have a close relationship with her stepsister like she does with her stepfather. Her stepsister isn't interested. And she even sort of brings up the fact that Kate experiences the world differently because she's white and um, has uh, all these privileges. Um, But after she comes back, uh, she wants to be a supportive sister and Kate's pushing her away. And that becomes um, sort of a central thread of how the mystery starts to be. Un, untangled but she's another character as a sort of like a a complex uh female associate of one of these yeah of of these i really girls. really like this the stepsister i yeah. am excited to see more of her and i actually think both of the siblings are really interesting and sweet foils um, yeah they're both sort of very like saintly yeah um, <laughs> they don't always like handle things perfectly <laughs> you could but they say. have their hearts in the right place they both seem to like genuinely hearts of gold yeah genuinely care about supporting their siblings and also I think the twist of them having like a romantic entanglement with each other is really interesting oh yeah um, and also like Jeanette's brother is just like a, a dream of a brother like oh yeah it's like if you are an actual teenage girl with an older brother, like chances are very high that you would look at that guy and be like, why isn't he my brother instead? <laughs> like, I think it's difficult. He's to like have a ride a or relationship die for Jeanette. When it's you're both really teenagers, sweet. it's very yeah. sweet. I think that it's difficult for teenage 
teenage siblings to have such a tight relationship, especially when one is a boy uh, and one is a girl, especially when one is really awkward and nerdy and one is not, you know, there's so many complex questions of like social capital and stuff that's bound up in that. But um, he is a very aspirational brother character. Before we move on to Sour, is there anything else that you wanted to, to touch we need on? To, yes, we need to talk about some of the mysteries. We need to get yes. into some theories. Okay, let's so talk there, about these theories. There are two like big <laughs> questions. One is, did Jeanette really see Kate and lie about it? One is, who is Annabelle? And Annabelle is someone that Kate brings up in therapy. She says Annabelle is someone she met while she was being held captive. Um, but she doesn't really remember bringing this up until she listens to a tape of her session. She doesn't at that point, remember who Annabelle is or what that means. So even Kate doesn't know who Annabelle is. And she says Annabelle, someone she met when things like got really bad after she tried to escape and uh, this, her captor was trying to sort of crack down a little bit. And so that's been teased for a couple episodes. Everyone's wondering who Annabelle is. What do you think? I don't know. I'm so torn. I have seen some compelling theories about like maybe Annabelle being some sort of a split personality. That's my theory. Yeah. Like I, I'm compelled by that. And I don't think it's actually like, I've seen some commentators being like, that's so far-fetched. That's so insane, but it's like not a crazy thing at all for someone who's under like extreme trauma and duress to sort of compartmentalize a piece of their trauma into like that's I'm just saying it's like not even that unrealistic it's not it's not even that unrealistic but also like who says this show is realistic I'm sorry (laughs) I just have to say this Kate is held captive in a basement with windows a lot of windows that have like some very flimsy looking wire like um mesh over them I mean she says literally that uh Jeanette saw her and made eye contact with her through a window and this is not like a super remote house. He's gone. Right in the neighborhood. He's at school <laughs> working a job. Like it's not super plausible to me that you could hold someone captive under those circumstances for that long. However, we're all swallowing that, right? For the sake of this, someone saw me plot twist. Fine. I don't think that Annabelle being a split personality that she has like come like put her trauma into is far-fetched in this world that we're I in. agree. That would be my, my guess. It, I feel like it would be weird if it was, I mean, it, I don't know who else it would be. Yeah, exactly. And the way the, the sort of horror movie way that she's introduced where, you know, we, she brings up Annabelle in therapy and then doesn't even remember who she is. It's almost like there's like a possession element, like the thought is in her head, um, but she's not really fully in, in ownership of that thought. Um, the way that we see her like writing the name repeatedly and like doodling, um, there's a very eerie ghost story element to it that fits with something like a split personality unless you want to say that annabelle is literally like a spirit and i think that's more far-fetched and would take us oh, into a different genre from what this is so no far. thank you no thank you so yeah. is annabelle like a person i personally like i i don't find that super plausible the one possibility would be martin kidnaps someone else right i was gonna say that's the only other way that I see and this she has that, repressed the memory of that person yeah as that there was someone else held captive with her someone who hasn't come forward 
Right. But so like, yeah, what happened to that person? Yeah. No, it, it, it seems like there, there would they must have, have been be a massive amounts of plot that, that we haven't seen if that's the case. Um, so here's a theory. Annabelle is someone else who's abducted by Martin. She's held, they're held captive together. They bond. Annabelle escapes without Kate and doesn't tell the media. And now she's projecting that onto, onto Jeanette, Jeanette. Who's oh, that's, you know what? I kind of like that. Claire. I don't think that that's what it is, but I it's don't think it is either, but I'm, but I'm into it. I look, I love some rampant speculation. It's fun. That's sort of like one of the great elements of watching these kind of shows is, is that you get to sort of guess at it. And like, it doesn't matter if your guess (laughs) is completely wrong. Like that's part of the fun. The other Uh, big question is, did Jeanette actually see Kate? My feeling is that there's some scenario in which they are both essentially telling the truth. Like we know Jeanette has a way to get into Martin's house. So yeah. I wouldn't be and surprised. And this is a running plot line from yeah. the very beginning. Basically Jeanette. From before and, he, he even moves in. Yeah. Jeanette and Mallory and their other friend, Vincent, come up with a list of things to, to complete, like a bucket list for the summer. And Mallory decides to put a bunch of illegal stuff on there. Um, first hint that she's like a bad influence and (laughs) Jeanette's a real goody two shoes, but they break into this house before Martin moves in um, thinking it'll be a fun, like easy crime to commit. And Jeanette just like gets off on the rush and ends up deciding to like go back um, and keep the key. So we know that she has like reason to be on the property. She likes going there. She does it without Martin knowing. So there's that. Yeah. I think that that is like completely realistic or like a completely normal assumption to make that she actually was at the property while, um, while Kate was being held there. Um, but I don't, I don't ultimately think that Jeanette is like full out lying for like, yeah. Yeah. Like my, my assumption is that there's something where, there's a, so there's a lot of mirrors in the promo in like the um, promo poster for the show. And the tagline, I think, is something like the truth is how you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that sort of implies that there may have been a way for like them to have made eye contact as far as Kate saw or experienced but that Jeanette Mm -hmm. didn't like actually see her yeah and specifically there are a lot of mirrors in the basement where she's being held captive and that's like when we first see the basement Jeanette is walking down into it looking for her friends they're playing hide and seek in what they think is an empty house and she walks down there and there's basically two walls of mirrors that meet in a corner uh facing the stairs and so she sees these two reflections of herself and it's actually quite unsettling. Yeah. And that could um, be just in there as sort of like a symbol or it could actually really the, play into I, the mystery. Well, I think that that's meaningful that there are literal mirrors there. I we agree. later see them sort of in a fun house. You know, Jeanette thinks she's chasing after Kate, but she keeps coming face to face with her own with reflection. Herself. So there is this um, very literal mechanism through these mirrors by which you know, potentially Jeanette is looking in, but she only sees a reflection of herself, herself. for example. Yeah. And that also wouldn't be a crazy thing to like, look into a window and depending on the light, often you 
do only see your own reflection and you can't really see exactly what's, you know, through the window. Um, so the window could operate as a mirror like that. That would be my guess is that there is some combination of things in which they are both ultimately telling the truth and they are both ultimately, um, suffering, you know, unfairly. Yeah. I think at this point it would actually be a wild twist if it turned out that Jeanette did see her. Was just like a completely evil like and, sociopath. And was just like, you know, I got in too deep. Like I, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want people to know I was creeping around the property. I'm like dating this girl's boyfriend now. Like I'm just going to like, I, you know, double down and lie to everyone. Year old. I'm just going to not, I'm, I, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to keep this secret. Then Kate comes back and she's like, well, I can't just be like, yeah, I knew. You, you gotta be like, I didn't see her. I think that would be a big twist. I think that would be a big twist. That they're going to go that I direction. I think it's unlikely they're going to go there. I think if anything, it would be that maybe, I don't know, that like Jeanette saw something that maybe indicated when she thought back that there was someone else in the house and that like mm-hmm. she carries some guilt from that. Like, I'm not yeah. saying she didn't see anything, but I don't think she like literally saw Kate being held captive like stared in her eyes and then was like I really like her boyfriend I mean maybe they're gonna go there but it seems really unlikely (laughs) um is there anything else you want to talk about uh thematically before no I think that I think that's kind of it I mean the only other thing is just that um obviously grooming some like really disturbing grooming plays a big role Mm -hmm. in the show and I was glad to see that like at the um, beginning and end of every episode, they sort of flash to like a hotline and they like do sort of a trigger warning for like their disturbing, um, instances of grooming in this episode, like be advised. And if you are experiencing any sort of grooming, sexual assault abuse, like here's where you can go. And so I appreciated that they took that, um, seriously. And I also think they've done a pretty good job of like, there's no sort of like titillating, you know, actual, um, instances of like, you're not like seeing any sort of like sexual abuse depicted on screen directly. And I also appreciate that. Yeah. The emphasis is really not on what actually happens while she's there. I don't know if that's going to evolve. Um, but it's unclear what exactly her captivity entailed. Um, it's really not about that. Like it's bad enough if he just kept her in a basement all year. And I think it's like, we don't need to know that. Like that is not ultimately what the show is exploring. They're using that as a mechanism and they're exploring the way that I think someone like Martin is able to manipulate a young woman who's kind of coming into her own, who doesn't feel seen, who, who feels again, like sort of crushed under the expectation that she performed perfection all of the time. Um, yeah. And the, the memory that... of, of Blake Bailey, uh, his very recent uh, exposure, mm-hmm. the Philip Roth biographer of his grooming of students, like that felt really present to my mind while I was watching these scenes that like, you know, you speak to a, a young person, like they're a peer and, and you see Martin doing that with Kate, like mm-hmm. treating her like she's not a student Um in the same way, like having like sort of heavy conversations with her where he's sharing things about his own past trauma and like relating that to hers, uh, her issues with her family, um, that he's keeping secrets um, from her parents with her, 
Um, even if it seems quite benevolent at the time, you know, like I won't tell your parents, your secret's safe with me, um, that sort of thing. And, and that, yeah, it makes her feel like this is someone who not only does he have the trust of her parents and the community, but he's someone who sees more in her than just a child. And that makes her want to be more than a child around him. Anyway, think, good stuff. Yeah. Good uplifting um, stuff. Let's talk really, about yeah. Sour. But actually, <laughs> I think that like, look, Cruel Summer is a sh- clearly, I didn't think we could talk about it this much, but apparently we have a lot to say about like everything we watch, Yeah, uh, which is why it's fun to do this podcast. But and I think um, like a nice way to maybe segue in is to just say um, that like a big part of the show is about how these women perceive themselves and their place in like the social order and their value to other people. And you see Jeanette going through a really exaggerated version of this arc where she starts out nerdy. She knows she's not cute. She knows that she can't like date the hot guys she likes. Um, She knows she's not popular. And she attains that by altering her appearance in certain ways, Um, straightens her hair, learns how to dress in trendy ways, et cetera and how to like perform the kind of femininity that she needs to, to be attractive, desirable. desirable. And Kate sort of starts there. It's something her mother really enforces. Her mother like married a a beloved famous quarterback uh, who moved to town and like puts a lot of emphasis on staying pretty for him. She expects Kate to be pretty and perform that. And Kate is kind of wrestling, presumably with partly the fact that that made her appealing to a predator. Um, and also that it doesn't really jive with her internal feelings about the world. She doesn't want to be cute and pretty for that world anymore. Um, and so there's like, they're both wrestling with, with the expectation that they be sexually desirable at such a vulnerable age. Much like Olivia Rodrigo <laughs> in the album Sour. Let's discuss. How did you how did you feel about this album? Have you had you been listening to her before this album kind of just like dominated Twitter? I mean, I certainly had listened to Driver's License and Deja Vu a bunch, mm-hmm. both of which I thought were really great and and fun songs. The album took it to like another level for me. Like I See, I'm like a sucker for this <laughs> kind of shit. Like you know, girl pop, lightly angry. Like it's, it really hits a lot of my, a lot of my sweet spots. Um, and so I was like, you know, had seen some things on Twitter. So the day it dropped, I listened to it and I was like this album, I've just had it basically on constantly since. And like, maybe that's totally pathetic. I don't know. We'll, we'll discuss, but I, I don't know. I was very compelled by it. Yeah, I like kind of miss the driver's license and deja vu trains because I sort of tried to listen to them and I was like, what is this? It's like formless. It's like, I don't get it. And then uh, Good For You came out and Good For You is like right up my alley because it's yes. very, it draws very heavily on the kind of like pop punk, like emo, angry emo. It felt like, very traditions that I was me. really <laughs> very Avril like very, very Avril in that whole constellation of like pop punk acts, mostly male um, driven, but like that whole constellation, Paramore, you know, the yes. that whole constellation of acts that 
that was my like main high school shit. Like I was really into that stuff in high school. And so that felt familiar to me. I got into it. Then I got backwards into driver's license and deja vu. And the whole album has that element of like a, a peg for every genre, almost like not every genre, but like country tunes, folk tunes, like ballads um, Mm -hmm. that feel very sweet. There is that. Yeah. As you said, that sort of like pop punk vibe, um, angry girl rocker vibe. It's just really fun. And I think that probably the thing that has made it like such a smashing success is that a lot of it focuses on, on a breakup, on a breakup that feels extremely fresh and on someone that you loved, like moving on to someone else. Um, and I think that that is both very much like a first love, very intense teenage experience, and also something that can be replicated at pretty much any stage in your life. Yeah. Um, it is essentially a breakup album. Um, she like, we, it pretty much seems that it was written a lot of it in the wake of her breakup with her co-star on high school musical, the TV show, <laughs> the TV which by show. the way, it is wild to me to like, I used to just listen to the top five and you listen to these first three songs on her most played list. And there are these, I think pretty sophisticated yeah. pop songs with like an adult edge. And then you get into like the, the fourth and fifth are high school musical tracks that are so I have, just like, I have had that abrupt change happen when I'm just like playing the album, you know, in my living room, I'm just like doing work. And then all of a sudden I'm like, what am I? And then it's Did like I two kids being like, it's going to be so like, hard being long distance for college, <laughs> but I love you. And you're like, wait, what, <laughs> what am I listening to? Some of them are cute. I, I do like, uh, I think um, all I want uh, was a high school musical song. And it was like her first song that she wrote that sort of was put out in a big way. Um, but so she has this background in the high school musical, um, and other like teeny bopper type, um, type entertainment. And she was dating one of her co-stars and then What's they his broke name? up. Joshua Bassett. I think. Yeah. I have Our, to admit I, like, he's kind of doofy, but like, I, I see it. I would have been into you him would have been into uh, it. for sure in high school. Um, the curly hair and like cute. Yeah. I, oh, I yeah. See it like sort of like he really like strikes that sweet spot for like middle school and high school crushes, which is like, he's sort of a non-threatening, but like lightly masculine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's intoxicating when you're, when you're like 16 and, uh, they dated, they broke up. He allegedly started dating someone else that they worked with on high school musical, a little blonder, a little older. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And she started writing this, this breakup album with a lot of details that do seem to be drawn. For example, he taught her to drive (laughs) and she wrote driver's license. um, She taught him Billy Joel. Okay. Claire, one the oldies. What's (laughs) wild about Billy Joel is that I'm just like, he was old when we were young, but everyone knew about him. Is he obscure now? I don't, I didn't think so, but I mean, I guess I mean, he was like, like a direct... Frank Sinatra or like Billy Holiday yeah. for when we were kids. Like he's so far in the past now. I guess although he is still doing he was concerts. a cultural touchstone for our parents. Right. Yeah. So that oh, felt God. like a direct attack. Like obviously, we we kind of absorbed that. Yeah. 
Um, no, that's true. But yeah, uh, it was it was funny to to hear that. Th- those were the moments where you're like, yeah, this this was written by a teenager. It's very much by and by a teenager and for teenagers. Yeah. And and the, and the music, the, the I can see why it hits so hard with millennials. Um, I I don't know how Zoomers are responding to it. I imagine that they also like it, but. I do think that you can hear a lot of mashing up of elements that were popular in different genres when we were teenagers and in college. And at that age that you're at, when you really internalize what music you will always love and will always feel like a part of you. Like there's a part in one of her songs where I just like had this moment of like, this is Bon Iver, you know? Yeah. Like that's just like, is a Bon Iver like element or, but then it also had Lord elements. Oh, or definitely Taylor Swift, Lord. Definitely Lord. Definitely stuff. Definitely Taylor Swift. It also, it, it almost gave me a little bit of vibes of that one excellent Ashley Simpson album that came out in 2004. Oh my God. That Ashley I used to, Simpson. that I used to like drive with my friends in high school. I like have this visceral memory of driving to the beach in Delaware, just like blasting that album. And the lyrics are nowhere near as sophisticated, but it it does have that sort of like, fuck off. I'm like living in my anger and it is unabashedly a feminine energy of like brand of anger. Um, And I get to express it. And like, I think maybe that's what hits really, really well for me. And there was a real thing that I saw people being like, oh, like, this is new. I wish this existed when I were young, yada, yada. Listen, we had Avril, we had Paramore, we we had Ashley Simpson. This is, I don't think that she's doing anything new. And that's like, that's kind of what pop music is. Like, I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, She's 18. She wrote a really good pop album. Um, I don't think we have to pretend that she invented like angry girl breakup rock like I'm sorry Tegan and Sarah got me through my breakup and that was perfectly fine I mean look at Jewel okay <laughs> yeah we didn't need Olivia Rodrigo that doesn't mean that her album we, we had is folk, <laughs> folk pop artists like Jewel who were great at expressing her <laughs> anger at men specifically her father exactly. pieces of you is an incredible album Still and you holds know what up. I I'm capable of imaginatively um, putting myself into the same emotional state as a taking back Sunday song, even though that it's done by men, but there were women doing these things as well. And you see those influences, um, in, in her songs, which is why I think a lot of us connected with, with them on such a immediate gut level. Um, but that brings me to the one big thing I wanted to talk about with this album, which is that I saw this sort of tension playing out on Twitter that was generational a lot of millennials like us tweeting really rapturously about the album and how much we loved it. And then eventually some people starting to be like, who told you guys about this album? Who told you like old millennials about this? Like, why are you listening to it? Um, Why do you think it's so great? Like why you're adults? Like, why do you want to listen to song? Like I saw people even saying, suggesting like, it's weird, like how much you're projecting on to her. Like she's a child, um, why are these like grownups creeping on this girl, um, who's like 18? What do you think about that? Like, I found that kind of surprising, but the more I thought about it, the more like it brought up a lot of different conflicting thoughts and feelings. So I want to hear what you think. I, I think that 
the part of that that lands with me is that like there obviously is an overemphasis and an over fetishization of teenagers across our our culture. And I think mm-hmm. that that is, you know, it's hard to sort of like separate any piece of this from that. On the other hand, I think my initial visceral instinct is sort of like, fuck off. These are pretty <laughs> like, these are pretty universal feelings that she's describing. And like, I was a teenager and mm-hmm. that is a really, what you experience when you are finding yourself at that stage of your life, like sticks with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, the, the sort of like scam of adulthood is that you actually never quite feel like an adult and you always feel like you're figuring yourself out. And that's something mm-hmm. that we give teenagers an explicit permission to feel and express. And we often don't give that to adults. Like we want adults to basically be at the peak of their success by 30, have figured everything out and then essentially like be absorbed into domesticity and disappear, especially if you're women. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that there is like a devaluation of a lot of, especially women's experiences as, as we age. And so the pop culture products that kind of rise to the top are often created once you get into your thirties by people who are younger than you. And, Mm -hmm. and to suggest that it's like fundamentally creepy to see yourself in something that was created by someone who wasn't a part of your generation. Like, I just find that really odd. I don't know. I also like listened on repeat during quarantine to Fiona Apple's fetch the bolt cutters. Like that also like really hit with me and Fiona Apple is generation X. Like, (laughs) am I not allowed to relate to that because she's a generation above me? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that again, there is like a conversation to be had that we've sort of been having throughout this podcast about the way that we treat youthfulness and the way that we treat teen girls specifically. But I don't think that it's necessarily projection to be like, I feel somewhat seen or I can relate to the feeling of being passed over or the the feeling of being like left behind and someone that you've like pinned a lot to moving on to someone that like taps into your insecurities. I think, especially as a woman, I think we are sort of trained to be like, if a man left you, like Mm -hmm. if you're a straight woman and a man left you, there's probably something fundamentally wrong with you. There's probably something that is like wrong with your appearance. And that is like something that I still hear echoed in like a lot of the conversations I have with my friends who are in their thirties, especially the ones that are in the midst of like dating, which can be really fucking rough. And I don't know that, like, obviously there's a lot of context and a lot of things that, that do change over the course of being like 18 to, you know, 38, Mm -hmm. but there's also some feelings that, that don't change all that much. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that it's creepy or sad or weird to acknowledge that this album tapped into that. Yeah. I think it actually is. It's funny to me that, that this album inspired a lot of this conversation that I saw, because I think that it's pretty clearly a bid for an adult audience. Like, I think that she is going through the same thing. A lot of Disney stars go through where you're playing to the, to the kids for, for a long time throughout your own early teen years, making uh, shows like high school musical, making albums that are 
like kid friendly. And then you want to make your turn to the mm-hmm. adult, um, uh, the adult, adult consumer base. You want to grow up. You want to be able to explore more adult material because you're older. And that's what this album is. It's a more sophisticated album. It's, it's a more, um, the content is something that is definitely relevant to adults. Heartbreak can happen at any age and it's not something you would associate with like an album by a Disney kid for, t- for kids. It's something you would associate with a more adult album. I mean, when I was going through my breakup, you know, I was like, yeah, Tegan and Sarah, but also like, I listened to a lot of frightened rabbit, which, um, the, the, the front man, uh, very tragically, uh, died of suicide a few years ago. Um, and he wrote these, some incredible albums about this big relationship in his life that fell apart. And they're, they were not about someone who was in the same life stage as me, you know, like a, a 19 year old, they were about someone older who had like lived with their partner, maybe who had been through more with them. I couldn't relate to all of the details in those lyrics, but they did speak to me because that feeling of heartbreak is, and even across gender, there there are elements of it that are quite universal. Um, And I think that if Olivia Rodrigo is making a bid to handle that kind of adult material for a wider audience, it's okay for a wider audience to respond to that. At the same time, I feel like there is like a general anxiety that is being addressed here, which is like, if I were a teenager and I saw so many adults being so invested in culture that was by and for and about people my age, how would I feel about that? I don't think that that was as much the case when we were young. Um, And I think that there has been a bit of like a Peter Pan element to our generation and to Mm -hmm. the way that we are like, well, why should I have to grow up? Why should I have to you know or also like why have I not been allowed to grow up because I haven't been supported in the workforce and like able to save properly and you know like (laughs) so I think that's maybe I wonder if that sort of plays a role here too right well there are generational like broader reasons why that's the case um but I do think that if I were a teen now and I was like this is the music that I like why are these 35 year olds <laughs> so obsessed with it? That makes me feel a little bit surveilled upon, you know, it makes me feel a little bit like I'm being like consumed, like my culture that I think of as being for me and that defines my budding personality, my budding identity, that that is like fodder for people to like cling to their own <laughs> lost youth. I get that. Like, I get that teens probably feel very surveilled right now. Like the constant trend pieces, like, what are the teens? The teens are saying chuggy now. Like, am I chuggy? Like, oh no, like, yes, you're 35. Like, deal with it. Um, also, chuggy was, was coined by like a millennial, like a young millennial. <laughs> Yeah. To be clear, it was like a 25 year old, <laughs> but it's just this desperation to like, to continue to embody youth. And when you are the youth, like what space does that leave for you? You know, but at the same time, like, and this is another thing that I thought of, like I was saying before, there's this huge market and this huge quantity of teen focused content being produced because so many adults are, are watching and reading it and listening to it. And you see this in YA there's an explosion of YA right now, so much more than when we were kids. Why? Because we're still reading it. Like adults are reading it. And oh, if yeah. they weren't buying so much I read YA, it. <laughs> I mean, written. look, I have good friends who write YA and I read YA and it, it, 
yeah, I don't know. I think that's so interesting. And I, 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 I don't know. I, I can't decide if it's like, if it's a problem. I have such complicated feelings Me about too. it. And I think that, that YA and music are, are also interesting because I think a lot of music is made by young people. And a lot of YA is written by people who are not, most YA is written by people who are not in that demographic anymore. And so, whereas with YA, it's almost like adults writing about teens for other adults to read. Um, With music, that is something that is often by young people and yet listened to by, by, older, by people. older people. So there are a lot of different directions that this consumption matrix can go. But I feel like I we do need, think we like need this... a Gen Zer on, on this podcast to tell I us. I, this is the problem. Like, <laughs> I don't know any. Like, I'm just I like, know? yeah, we're just talking about our, this is all from our perspective ultimately. Yeah. And like, obviously I, I don't really read much YA, but I do listen to a lot of music by young people, young people. And I think that music is something that young people invest a lot of their identities in. And maybe that's why it's such an awkward thing to see it being consumed. Like it's the original gatekeeper thing, right? Where you're like, oh, like, I don't like this artist anymore because they went mainstream. Like I liked them before they did their breakout album. That's such a classic, like, music fan thing to do because it's like you're a teenager you latch onto this thing that you think defines you in some way that defines your identity it makes you different from other people other people start listening to it you're like well what does that mean about my identity that I've curated and if you're listening to Olivia Rodrigo and your mom is also listening to Olivia Rodrigo (laughs) I feel like maybe that creates some identity crisis (laughs) you're like how do I differentiate myself from my parents I know I I feel like I was always like a very um like basic music fan. So I'm like not even <laughs> the right person to be like fully weighing in on this. I'm just like, yeah, always loved like angry girl of rock and pop. I, yeah, I don't know that much about music. I tried like, to get my dad into Avril Lavigne, but I don't think that's a normal way to handle I mean, it. I used to make like intense mix CDs. Um, I would download songs off of Napster and make mix CDs to play in the car when I drove to school in the morning once I could drive. And like my parents just ended up listening to those mix CDs and they know like all the words to all the songs on the mix CDs that I made in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like kind of a fun thing. And I think back now and I'm like, yeah, like the stuff I liked, they got into it too. Well, there's, and here's maybe where the disconnect is. There is listening to a CD in the car, right? And I want, I enjoyed that too. I would give my dad a a mix CD with like the national and Bell and Sebastian and be like, this is the cool music now. Um, And they're good songs. He would like them. I think he listened to them, but he wouldn't like come to a Bell and Sebastian concert. And I think that there is a degree with the music you listen to of like a lot of your emotional like attachment to the scene is, is rooted in going to these group events. And if you go to a concert and everyone there is a lot older than you, I think that that gives it a different color than, than if you go and everyone is like young and hot and indie like you. (laughs) And so very real. I think that there is like, a it, it, in a way that maybe is not entirely the case with something you consume in a more solitary setting purely. 
I think it can relate really closely to like who you're being positioned in association with because they're also consuming it. I don't know. Now I, I just really I want to feelings to, about it. Talk to a bunch of Gen Zers. Yeah, tell about... us if we're being creepy. I am listening yeah. to Sour on repeat. I also like <laughs> played it in the car for Greg when uh, we had a babysitter and uh, we both like cried. Like it was very Wait, that's at, the cutest at her thing vocal I've ever heard. stylings and driver's license. Her voice is just like beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Powerful. I mean, I also like even the song about comparing herself to other women or like on other girls, I said, mm. you know, in high school, I was like that, even those themes like still feel relevant. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Tell me if I'm being creepy, but I just keep playing it. Like I, I have a car in Brooklyn now and like, it's just a really nice soundtrack when I'm driving between yeah. my apartment and my boyfriend's. Okay. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, it's a good album. I'm going to keep listening to it. I think that I do want to briefly like go back and like tug on something you said about how teenagers have permission to like figure themselves out in ways that adults don't because adults have to disappear into domesticity. And I think part of the problem is that we have like fetishized the idea that this teenage period and young adult period of figuring yourself out is the only thing that's interesting and worthy of attention. I don't think that just because you embrace domesticity means you have to disappear and no, That's I, the direction we're moving right. in. So for example, like, I still think I'm like figuring myself out in certain ways, but I don't actually feel like I'm that similar to a teenager and how that's playing out. And maybe that's partly, I think people have different ways that they arrive at a more settled adult sense of themselves. For me, I think it really helped to have a child because I had to perceive of myself less as like the center of my own neuroses and yeah. like figuring myself out as the central project of my life that kind of gets pushed to the side. I do think that's an element of growing up and becoming an adult. And I think some people find that in other ways by like devoting themselves to their community or to a professional goal. Um, for, for me, I think child, child having really, really pushed that process along, but I think all that stuff is really interesting and is not really centered in pop culture. Um, it's like the main ways that adults have to think about defining themselves and thinking about what they bring to the table is by sort of revisiting that feeling of being a teenager who's right. figuring stuff out. I think I know. I think that's exactly it. And I think that that is the frustrating thing. And I think mm -hmm. that especially, I think that's potent for all adults, but I think there is something especially potent for women who there is such an emphasis on being up and coming in some capacity. Yes. And, and once you have become, what are you supposed to do? You still have perhaps more than half of your life left once ah. you have become something and you are con always continuing to become right. You, I think your whole life, you are finding new pieces of yourself, new versions of yourself, new, you're having new experiences. And I think that it is fundamentally terrifying to me, the idea that like, when I am doing perhaps like more interesting things than I was when I was a teenager, I am like expected to retreat and to take up less space. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that like, we all should be centering ourselves all of the time. I absolutely think that it can 
you know, for me, like, I think, as you said, like career and also just like, yeah, being invested in the greater world and caring about policy and community and, and the way that these things affect other people has been really helpful in not like clinging to my own selfhood so, so much in every respect of my life. But I also like resent the fact that like, as you are coming into yourself in these different ways, like there is this feeling that no one wants to hear from you anymore. Yeah. Um, And I think that if we did that, if we did emphasize that less, there might, there might like of a feeling of obsession when um, we have pop culture created by young people that like taps into a feeling that we also still feel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like to, to feel like still seen by something yeah. that, that is in the zeitgeist when, when you're kind of growing out of the age when you're perceived as being central to it is intoxicating. And I, I, maybe the day comes, like, I haven't been through a breakup in like a decade and I'm over it. And so it's kind of crazy how, how powerful that emotion still is when you just press on it a little bit to be like, remember, remember how it felt <laughs> like let's I sing about it. It's I'm like, when I'm 50, will I, will I stop like, scream whispering along to songs like that when I'm alone in the kitchen, maybe, um, maybe you eventually do lose it all together, but it is crazy how, um, those memories are so strong and baked into your sense of who you are as a person, those early traumas <laughs> and, and it still feels really good to kind of access for a few minutes. Oh, it feels so satisfying. And I think maybe what we're kind of landing on is that like, there is not something fundamentally creepy necessarily about like feeling connected to this pop culture. And on the other hand, wouldn't it be beautiful and expansive if we had this much space for people of of all ages to sort of center their experiences? And if we could kind of like find ourselves cross-generationally in in all directions, like if the landscape was more expansive, then perhaps like everyone would win. I agree with that. And I also want to say, like, despite all of my comments kind of uplifting the idea that maybe it's creepy, I do have really complicated feelings as, as I've described, but I also feel like there's something like a little bit anti-art about the way that people sometimes talk about this. Like if I'm an 18 year old musician and I make a great album, um, don't I want as many listeners as possible to appreciate that art and to find themselves in it in some way? Um, I sort of think so. Like, I don't think that you have to be exactly like Olivia Rodrigo to be able to interpret and draw meaning from her art. And so I'm always a little bit troubled when it's treated as if I'm like literally sitting down at the table with Olivia Rodrigo and being like, let's dish girl. Like, I want to hear all about what's going on with your dating life. And I'm just some creepy, like 32 year old doing that. Like it's, I'm, I'm having emotional and aesthetic reactions to her art and that's what it's for. That's what it's designed for. And I think that that fundamentally is okay, despite all of the distortions in the, uh, 
in the entertainment and culture world that we've been discussing, which I think have, have issues, but, um, I, I like where you landed on that. I completely agree. I completely agree with everything that you've said. And I feel like this is a perfect place for us to kind of wrap up. And on that yes. note, that's it for this episode of rich text. We went long and I think it was worth it. Uh, you can find us on Substack at claranemma.substack.com and on Instagram at claranemmapod. You can also find us individually on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Emma Lady Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more pop culture analysis.